Welcome. It's great to see those of you that are in the room. Thank you for wearing your masks. Thank you for being social distanced. Thank you for putting up with all of it to keep our community safe, to be gathering. Thank you for those of you that are tuning in at home where you feel safest. Uh, God does not care where we are today. Do you know that, right? I mean, it just doesn't matter to God. It's like, God's like, I'm everywhere, so whatever. <laughs> but I think it is good that we're connecting, and I love it. So uh, listen, we're in this series. This is our seventh week. Some of you are like, I know. Can we move on to a new topic? <laughs> just wait. You know, it's coming January. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, we've been talking about peace and, and church, and really it's been kind of seven weeks of uh, dreaming about the future of our church. What is next? What does God have for us next? And our anchor verse for this series, and really the anchor verse for what uh, I believe and what so many of us that have been praying and thinking and discerning believe God's directing us into for the next decade is this verse. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children of God, having laser focus on that. What does it mean to be a community of peacemakers? So this song, Imagine, came came out in 1971, 1971. If you were not born in 1971, you're in good company with me. I was not born in 1971. Some of you are born in 91, 2001. <laughs> like, what is this? But uh, this song, Imagine, has taken the world and it continues to take the world by storm. Seems like maybe a funny song to sing in church as it starts off, imagine there's no God, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, uh, imagine there's no religion, right? Um, but the truth is, Jesus's message was kind of similar to some of that. Right? Imagine there isn't religion. There isn't this need for us to have a full and, and perfect understanding of God. Look at the problems our beliefs have caused around the world. Right, But I love some of the ways in which this song really does speak to what I think is a, a yearning in our hearts. Uh, if we're honest, like things that we would love to see, uh, especially as transformed people, right? It, it says, imagine there's no countries. Isn't this hard to do? Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to imagine all the people living life in peace. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that would be like, yeah, that sounds awful. Like, can we just skip that? Let's go back to war and famine and pestilence and disease, right? Imagine no possessions. And, and for those of us like in the West, in our like, you know, ownership mindset, right? Like, which, this is hard for us to imagine, right? This is really a difficult one. But if you didn't have to own anything, imagine if everything was like a museum, just everyone could enjoy everything, right? That everybody had what they was needed, right? No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of men. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say, I'm a dreamer, write the chorus, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. This picture of the world, the globe. 1971, pre-internet, right? I mean, think about the visionary here, like the, 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 the understanding, the dream that this would have been. Like the world was much bigger in 1971 than it is today, right? In 1971, uh, the, the idea of traveling across the seas was for a very small group of people, right? Understanding what was happening around the world was seen through one or two perspectives, but now the information of what is available to us to be able to kind of sift through and understand, it's a completely different world. And it's interesting to ask the question, why is it that this better version of the world is so hard to imagine? If you're a fill-in-the-blank person, you are going to go on overload today because I have so many fill-ins for you, right? If you want to track along as we try to compact maybe three hours worth of information into 30 minutes, right? 25 minutes. Let's be honest, 35 minutes. Um, but... Uh, 
Why is it so hard to imagine it being real? Because I do believe the reality is the resources exist to create this idea. But why is that so hard for us to imagine? And I think it comes down to this. That at the end of the day, we as people, we've been trained, we've grown up in a system, we've learned to just simply accept as truth what should actually be unacceptable. Like we've grown up in our systems, we've grown up in our categories, we've grown up in our way of thinking, we've grown up in our neighborhoods, we've grown up in our skin color, we've grown up in our sexuality, we've grown up in our you know, wealth class, we've grown up in these areas, and we've just been told this is the way it is, this is truth, this is what happens, and we just kind of accept it without thinking that it could be something else. And then it gets so ingrained in us, we just all of a sudden think that what should be unacceptable is actually just, we say, oh, well, that's just truth. So we think of things like we talked about last weekend with spiritual emptiness and the rise of nuns and people almost becoming these kind of dissected and and, and split in half people where we aren't understanding the fullness and the wholeness of our world, the spiritual life, the physical life, working together. There's a spiritual emptiness that's out there. We just accept it. Well, it's just, you know, it's just life. It's just truth. There's just going to be people that believe, people that don't believe. And, you know, there'll be people that go to heaven, people that go to hell. It's just the way it is, Right? We live in a world that just basically accepts global poverty, accepts that there will always be people in poverty. It's just the way it is. It's just the truth. There's 38 million people in the United States right now living below the poverty line. 10% of the entire planet, 10% of the entire planet live on less than a dollar a day. And when we hear that, the truth is we're not enraged. Why are we not enraged by that? Because we've just lived in a world that says that's just the way it is. It's just truth. I mean, you think about that. You talk about categories of literacy. Literacy is one of the great global giants that that we know affects so much. And yet in our world, there's 775 million people that do not know how to do basic reading and writing. And this year, 150 million more children will be added to that. Basic fundamental realities in our modern kind of world that you need to be able to succeed, that you need to be able to move forward in uh, life, and yet we still, it is what it is. We don't even know it, right? When it comes to things like racism in our world and sexism and homophobia, there was a study done, and, and, and a group of Americans were asked, is it more acceptable right now to express va- racist views than it was four years ago? 65% of Americans said yes. It is more acceptable today than it was four years ago to express racist views. The United Nations, of which our nation is a part of, and many nations throughout the world are part of it, try and accomplish a better world. There are still 13 nations in the UN that have the death penalty for LGBTQ members. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's just, well, it just is what it is. Research tells us that it will take 108 years to close the economic gender gap. 108 years. And we just kind of live out the lyric of another song by Bruce Hornsby in 1986. So it's just the way it is. What, what am I supposed to do about it? I mean, it's just the way it is. Some things will never change. It's the way it is. But I love the lesson. But don't you believe them. Don't you believe them? And the truth is, every now and then, in our neighborhoods and in our circles, there's a person that doesn't believe it, right? Every now and then, we don't believe it. Every now and then, we start to feel that unacceptable, like, feeling. You know that kind of feeling that's like, it's it's kind of like a bit of anger and sadness all mixed together and frustration. Maybe you've had it with your children. You ever said to your kids, like, that's unacceptable? (laughs) No? You're not yours? 
I just say it like every day in my life to my kids. I'm like, my kids might think their existence is unacceptable to me. I say it so often. I have to be careful, you know. But like somebody at work, that's just unacceptable behavior, right? It's unacceptable reality. And so sometimes when we experience it and we feel it, our response to it is to get overwhelmed. Let's face it. Some of those statistics are just mine. We can't even fathom it, right? We can't fathom it. So we just kind of get overwhelmed and we do the whole like bury our head in the sand and cover our ears and pretend it's not happening around us. Some people get angry, right, and wishful. I wish somebody would do something about that. So there's got to be somebody who knows something. Like the people who are supposed to know, who are, they should be able to do, somebody should do something about that. And, and it's, a, it's a real response to what is unacceptable. And then some people take it a step further and they become social media activists, right? That, oh, I'm going to repost, retweet, post out there, right? Watch this. And so we, we leverage that. And become, but, but really at the end of the day, it just kind of ends with that. Very few people actually intentionally use their time, talents, and treasure to educate and engage in these issues, these unacceptable realities. A friend of mine would call them unacceptable statistics of a city, right? To educate ourselves around them, to actually then be able to engage in, uh, in, the, in saying, no, this, this can't be the same. This can't stay the same. And I think Jesus lived in a time, like all of us, where there were unacceptable statistics. There were unacceptable realities of Jesus' day. And I wonder if we took a few minutes today, like what we would find, like how did Jesus respond to the unacceptables in his day? Like how did he actually like interact? If, if part of what we are as a community of faith is we have this belief, this statement of faith that Jesus was the incarnation of God, was God in the flesh, that when we look at the life of Jesus, we see God perfectly, we see the, the true nature of God. We see what it means to be a real human, right? That's what God wants to do. God wants to show us through in Christ how to be human, right? How did Jesus respond? So a couple of ways that Jesus responded. First of all, Jesus spoke truth. He spoke truth to abusive power and systems. Jesus never shied away from speaking the truth no matter what it would cost, and eventually it would cost him his life. So the, the, the power brokers of Jesus' day outside of Rome, but there locally in Jerusalem, they would have been what we read in scripture, if you're familiar, these people called Pharisees or Sadducees. These would have been like the major political parties of the day. Oftentimes we think if you've been around church for a while of Pharisees and Sadducees as kind of like pastors. And they had that function, but it's probably more accurate to imagine them as Democrats and Republicans. Right? It's, a, it's, possible, it's more likely that these folks exercise that kind of power. They made up what we call our Senate and our House of Representatives. Like they made up those governing bodies that established laws. They established the court system. So these were the people in power. It wasn't that Jesus was just like disagreeing with a rabbi, a person who taught religion. I mean, Jesus was, was going into the very seat of power often. And at times he would teach about these people and he would teach about their attitudes and what they had become. And at one point in time in, in the gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, we have this big section of statements against the Pharisees. And Pharisees get a bad rap. They weren't all bad 
people, right? I mean, they're misguided at times, but there were, I'm sure there were wonderful Pharisees that loved the people, that wanted people to flourish under God's care and love. So we just have to be careful as we read scripture, we don't form this like bias that, that all Pharisees were these horrible, uh, horrible individuals. But one time Jesus said this in 23.5, he's teaching people. He's talking about the Pharisees. He says, all their works are performed to be seen. They just want to be seen. They widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love places of honor. Now, most of you don't wear, walk around wearing phylacteries and tassels, right? Uh, but this was a prayer shawl that would be worn, and it was a sign of dignity, and it was a sign of religious behavior. And they would want everybody to see them. And they would practice all their you know, religious behavior, all the things that were supposed to be done like in private, personally. They would practice those. I'm going to move this out a little bit, see if that helps you all. Is that okay? Do you all hear that? I'm just kidding. Of course you hear it. I could just pretend it's not existing forever, or we could actually pause and fix it. What do you say? Um, it could be this. You need a new pack? You want to bring me a new pack? All right. Give John a great big hand. There we go. Let's try that one. What do you say? We don't take ourselves too seriously around here. All right. Uh, what was I talking about? Sound equipment, <laughs> static, Jesus. Okay, let's go back to Jesus. All right. So he, these Pharisees, they just love to be seen. And this was the abuse of power. It's like, look at how important I am. It really wasn't for the people or about the people. But he spoke that out. He, he confronted that. Right? At one point in time, probably the, 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 the most heinous thing that Jesus ever did in the eyes of the leadership was the cleansing, what is called, has become known as the cleansing of the temple. And again, when you think of temple, you have to not just think of like a church. You got to think of like, like the Capitol building. You got to think of like the White House. You got to think of like, the, uh, it's just, we just don't understand. It's hard for us to, to grasp this idea of the intertwining of religion and uh, public life and, and, and policies and politics. It was all one thing. So when Jesus goes to the temple, it wasn't like he just ran through the lobby at Crossroads and was like, why are you serving coffee? You know, that, that, that's my favorite one that people have used for the last 20 years at churches that serve coffee. Jesus, turn it over. Like, give me a break. Like, no, Jesus went through burning flags in the, you know, in the halls of Congress. Like, that's what Jesus did, okay? Like, the coffee thing is okay, you know? It's not like, at any rate, that's a whole other message. Okay, so, so Jesus goes through and he does this thing that's called the cleansing of the temple, where it's described that Jesus goes in and he, he releases all the animals that were being sold for sacrifice. He, he turns out all of the money changers. And what was happening here was people would travel to Jerusalem. They had to make very specific sacrifices. And so people would buy their, their animals. They would do it. They'd have to exchange money in Jerusalem. They would get robbed in the exchange. They'd get robbed in buying the animals. Certain people couldn't go in and worship because of the way it was set up. And Jesus finally had had enough, right? And we're not even sure how many times, by the way, that Jesus actually went to Jerusalem. Depending upon who you read in terms of the Gospels, he either went once or maybe three times. It's likely maybe Jesus only went to Jerusalem one time. So, so Jesus goes in and he, and he turns over all the money changers and sends all the animals out. And after he does this, he sits down with the people that just saw him throw a temper tantrum. I mean, that's what it would have looked like from the outside, right? It would have looked like this guy just like, what is he doing? 
And he sits down and he teaches them in uh, Mark chapter 11, we have this. And he says, he taught them saying, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples, but you have made it a den of thieves. See, this is Jesus speaking truth to power. He's saying this place was set up to be a blessing to all people, that every person could come in here in prayer. But you've set up all these systems and structures so that you could get wealthy, so that you could uh, control the people and you've excluded people. But that's not what this place was for. And eventually that one would cost him his life. Another way in which Jesus kind of dealt with the unacceptable realities of his life, and most unacceptable realities deal with, deal with oppression, what, what, what scripture calls the least of these at times, what, uh, what we would say where there are pockets of systemic injustice that no matter how hard you try, it's not just a matter of trying harder, there's actually the deck is stacked against you, right? Jesus treated people that were trapped in that system with dignity and compassion, dignity and compassion. He didn't see people as, that were outside the system, that were outside the mainstream as people who should be treated as outsiders or cast out. He did the exact opposite. And so he does this in exact opposition to his religion. And Jesus was a Jew, undoubtedly. He was a good Jew. He loved his faith, but he wasn't content to sit by and watch the people be abused. And so he spoke against this and, and he did it in, in very tangible ways. We see this when Jesus would encounter people who were sick. He wouldn't just keep his social distance, right? Right, he wouldn't say, oh, well, you know what, let's just, you know, let me take a look at that from back here. That looks like a bad sore, you know? Jesus would get close and personal. And in, in Matthew chapter eight, we have this amazing story of a man who has leprosy, who has spent his whole life since he's been diagnosed with leprosy, again, by the temple elite. He gets diagnosed, they look at him, he gets labeled, and he has to live outside of culture. He has to live outside of community. He has to shout that he's unclean, identify himself as unclean, walking through the seat so people could back away from him. And he wants to be healed. And, and scripture says in Matthew chapter eight that Jesus came and stretched out his hand and he touched him. And we shouldn't pass by that. That touch is the miracle. The fact that he's healed is another miracle, but the fact that Jesus would touch him is a miracle in and of itself. And Jesus touched him and he said, be made clean. And his leprosy was cleansed immediately. All of Jesus's miracles, all of his healings have a point greater than the physical healing, right? Jesus is coming and he's saying, compassion, dignity. Sure, he could have spoke it from a distance, but he wanted to show dignity to the person. Compassion, something that this person had probably not experienced for decades. Another way that Jesus actually encountered and engaged the unacceptables of his world was he lived an anti-life. <laughs> this one you're gonna love. There's a lot here. Jesus lived it. He lived an anti-racist because he grew up in, an, in, just like all of us, he grew up with racism around him. It's been a part of history. <laughs> he grew up anti-nationalistic. He wasn't just concerned with his people. Jesus grew up and he lived this life that was anti-sexist. He was an anti-religious elitist. It wasn't just about his religion. And we see this in one, in a couple of places. One in particular is this amazing story where in John chapter four, Jesus encounters a woman at the well. Some of you have heard this story. He encounters this woman at the well and this woman has had a rough life. A lot of things have happened to her. And Jesus goes up and he speaks to her with compassion and dignity. He, he listens to her story. He, he, he teaches her and he, in this whole thing, he breaks down everything. He breaks down racism because she was a Samaritan woman and the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. Hated each other is probably a, a pretty accurate word. I mean, Jews would walk 
uh, uh, they would travel an extra six hours just to avoid Samaria. But Jesus travels through Samaria and he engages people. So he meets this, so he's talking to a woman, he's breaking the sexist norms, he's He's speaking to a Samaritan, breaking the nationalistic racist norms. And then he says to her this crazy statement, hey, there's going to come a time where it doesn't matter where you worship, whether on this mountain or that mountain, but only that you worship in spirit and truth. Like Jesus basically just said, your religion doesn't matter. I mean, that, like, like I have to pause on that one because like I make a living from this. Like what happens if I don't matter? But basically what Jesus is saying is like, this is not worth dying for. This is not worth killing each other over, right? I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the big truth behind Lenin's song, Imagine There's No Religion. It's not that there isn't a place for it, but what in the world? Why are we hating each other over it? Jesus says, it doesn't matter. It's when you worship in spirit and truth, when your heart is in, in all in one setting, we get this. And it's given to us in such a beautiful way, an inspired way in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And the fact that we call, it, call this person the good Samaritan tells how racist we are and we don't even know it still. Like, why not just the story of the Samaritan? Why does the Samaritan have to be labeled as good? Right? It's like when people say, oh, such a good female leader. Well, why isn't it just such a good leader? There's a bias there. We don't realize it. We don't mean it to be. But the fact that we call the Samaritan good reveals the bias in scripture because it would have been unheard of for a Samaritan to be the hero of the story, right? Jesus taught it and he lived it. And, and that is to say that Jesus did not accept the unacceptables. He just didn't do it. He refused to. He said, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna play by your system. I'm not gonna play by your rules. I refuse to do it. I'm not gonna be led by culture saying that this is just what it has to be. No, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And what we learn from Jesus is that the Holy Spirit equips us, equips us as a church to change the unacceptable statistics of our day. Jesus said in Acts chapter one, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's talking to his disciples. He was telling them about what would come at the day of Pentecost, which would open their eyes to what has always been available to them, but now they're ready for. And that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit available to all people everywhere to be a witness to this peacemaking way, this life of Jesus in Jerusalem, their city, Judea, Samaria, their region, and to the ends of the earth. In John chapter 14, Jesus said it this way. He was mad when he said, he's crazy. He, I don't know what he was thinking when he said this. He said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do even greater ones than these because I'm going to the Father. Like, what? I mean, I don't know if you've read the stories of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was, I mean, what Jesus did was unheard of. Like he fed 5,000 people and healed people. And Jesus says, you'll do even greater things than these through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that Stuff the Truck, if we get our act together and everybody gives and we bring bags in, in one year of Stuff the Truck, we'll feed more people than Jesus ever did. Take that, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if that's sacrilegious or not. I'm still here. I think Jesus has a sense of humor. He made me, so I'm just saying. <laughs> He made me and said, hey, go be a pastor, right? <laughs> like, but like that's the, but Jesus would be like, absolutely. You know how many people have been healed through modern medicine? Through people willing to work hard and long hours to study the human body, to, to, to take risks, to learn, to care. I was watching a television show the other day, Wendy and I started watching it called Transplants. Has anybody ever seen this show? 
watch, if you're watching online, Transplant. I don't know what station it's on, to be honest with you, but uh, it's, a, it's a Syrian refugee doctor who ends up in Canada in, immigrating, and he's working in a hospital. It's a really fascinating show. Uh, really wonderful to see uh, our, our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters not portrayed as uh, terrorists on TV. So that's always wonderful. I appreciate that. And, uh, but, but in the show, you're watching like, you're watching the care that's given to save this woman who got an infection and she's pregnant and they save the baby and they save her and she lives in this family and this story. And I sat there and I just couldn't stop thinking, how is that not God? Like, how is that work not ministry? How is what you do when you go into a classroom every day not God? Anybody does. How is it that we have just so bifurcated and said, this is where God works and this is not what, but you see that kind of love and sacrifice and healing. You go, look what we've done together. And if you do the research, a guy named Rodney Stark wrote a book called How Christianity Saved the West. And he's an anthropologist uh, who's not a believer, I don't think. But he talks about when you look at modern medicine, when you look at hospitals, and if you were to take out of the equation, the Christian movement, where we would be today, Why? Because the Christian movement at its finest, the teachings of Jesus propel us into the world to fix the problems of this world, not out of it, right? And and that was the beauty of it. And so we will do these greater things, but here's what's even more amazing. Not only are we equipped to do it as the church, but this is even more, that Jesus actually commanded us to equip others everywhere to change their unacceptable statistics. Like it's not just enough for us to go, oh, we've got to do this. We're actually called to do it into another generation. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, this like where Jesus just commissions his disciples and we've taken it as a commission for the whole church. He says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, make followers, invite people to be a part of this peacemaking movement of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now again, that idea of baptizing, Jesus is doing something so revolutionary here that we miss it because we're so used to it. He was saying outside the temple constructs, outside of religion, don't baptize them in the name of this religion and these laws. No, you just do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just do it in God's name and you baptize them into it. And it was a religious tradition of his day that made sense to people. Oh, we're used to getting baptized. They would get baptized for all kinds of stuff. So they're baptized into this work, but you go out and you make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I think it all gets summed up into those 16 statements that I talked about a few weeks ago, where I think we're going to be focusing in on. And as we raise up new disciples of people who want to be a part of this movement, he says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So here's the point. Not that I'm close to being finished, but here's the point. All right. I love it. For those of you that are online, you can just tune off anytime you want. They're stuck here. They're just stuck. All right, no, here's the point, right? When it comes to these unacceptable statistics, God has called and empowered every generation since the beginning of the church to a global peacemaking mission. And this global peacemaking mission changes unacceptable statistics. Things that are inconsistent with the gospel and the peacemaking way of Jesus, we are empowered to go into to find the darkest corners of our world and be light. That's the point. And it's a global endeavor. Now, there's so many issues in our world, right? There's so many unacceptable things in our community. The first thing that we as a church have to do is we have to choose where. Where will we equip and inspire and encourage peacemaking over the next 10 years? Now, I'm not here today to tell you exactly where that is, but I'm here to give you some thoughts. 
Like we have to decide where to put those resources. Where will we focus our attention? Both uh, philosophically, like, like the what will we tackle in peacemaking, but then like we also have to think about the geography of it. But where will we? So here's the thing I would say. Here's five unacceptables that we know are unacceptable things all around the globe. Uh, some of these have oftentimes been called the, the, uh, the, the great like, absolutes that are, 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 are causing all kinds of pain all throughout the world, right? The global giants, some have called them. Not all of them, because I've intermixed some things that I think are a part of our heartbeat here, but here's just five potential unacceptables. That imagine the church that says over the next 10 years, we're gonna choose three to five areas where we focus our peacemaking. Not that there's not a, but where we as a collective group say, this is where we can collectively equip one another, equip others and engage in. And if we just got focused in, in three or four or five of these areas or one of these areas even. So five unacceptables, spiritual emptiness. The very fact that we exist as a church means this is gonna be one of our unacceptables. We find it unacceptable that people don't know that God is not violent and that God is not exclusive. That God is love. And what has produced spiritual emptiness is religion and empty religion and this idea that you need me to get to God and God is gonna be angry at you if you don't do everything just right, we've missed it. And so we engage in spiritual emptiness around the world. That's, that's a huge part of what it means to be a church. Another unacceptable reality that I believe we ought to speak into is poverty. Poverty, we ought to understand poverty. We ought to understand how it works. We ought to understand oppressive economic systems. We ought to engage in combating these unacceptables. It should be unacceptable that poverty exists in our world. As wealthy and as much uh, in ingenuity and innovation as we have, we as a church ought to figure out where in the system of poverty, which is a living system, where can we get involved? And you know, some of the best things to do in all of these is just to start with education, understanding poverty. If you're interested in this topic, I don't have a slide for anything, but there's a great book called A Framework for Understanding Poverty by a woman named Ruby Payne. It's a fantastic book. It's, it's really short, but it gives you a framework for understanding the different classes and the rules of the classes. What are the rules of, the, of poverty? What are the rules of the middle class? What are the rules of the upper class? And you, so you learn a lot. It just gives you a framework for beginning to say, how can I engage in an anti-poverty movement? I mentioned earlier one of the great uh, things that we have just come to accept is illiteracy in our world. I think as a church, I know this might seem strange to you, but, but as people who find so much hope in the text of Scripture and the reading and listening of Scripture, boy, literacy should be something we care about. And I think as a church we do in our partnerships with Edmondson School and around the world, but we can focus and partner to, to see education become a priority. And we should say, this is the good work of the gospel. Fear. Fear is the fourth area I think we should dig into. I couldn't figure out a word that would encapsulate all three of these things. So I said, well, what causes these three things? It's fear. Um, one, of, one of our church members, I think maybe listened on Thursday or whatever, sent me a text just this morning. He said, maybe the word is otherisms. I said, that's great, I'm gonna steal it. Otherisms. Like we need to fight otherisms right? The things that separate us, racism, homophobia, sexism, it's the other out there, right? We don't see ourselves as one in this big cosmic egg that exists in the care of God. And I think a fifth area that's important for us, especially in the West, to engage in as followers of Jesus is modern day slavery. That we ought to be looking at what does it mean to be a part of ending the trafficking of human beings, 
And how can we participate? Now, these are five potential things that I believe we as a church should inspire, equip, and encourage at a global level, right? We inspire people to, to engage in these areas as a, as a measure of their faith, as an outflowing of their experience of God's love. And we do it globally, right? Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other parts, other most parts of the earth. So what's our Jerusalem? Northern Colorado is our Jerusalem. What's our Judea and Samaria? The United States of America. This is our region. This is our country. This is where we're a part of. And then the uttermost parts of the world. What are the uttermost parts of the world? Well, the uttermost parts of the world. But I think it's places where we know people. We have relationships. The world has become smaller. I'm excited to introduce to you over the next year or two people that I know that love Jesus that are doing this kind of work all around the world that have transformed my life and transformed communities that I've worked with that I believe will continue to transform us as we encounter them. And so we got to choose where to do this. But we also have to choose how. Like, how will we do this work? And now we get into like strategies around this and what does it look like? And it looks like partnering with organizations that are doing this work. You know what I think one of the best things about the church is? That we can be an incredible fundraising community. Like we can raise money to empower people to do the good work they're called to do. It doesn't have to be us doing it. Like it's such, it's a, such a unique nonprofit in that respect that there is so much good work that we don't actually have to do ourselves, but we can have a heart for it and they can teach us what they're doing and help us and we can help fund them. I love it. I love fundraising, by the way. How many of you are super excited about that? <laughs> it's like, no. Well, you should skip two weeks from now. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Because I think it's wonderful to release money from God's kingdom into God's work. I think it's awesome. We have such amazing... I mean, just such amazing opportunities with that. So we have these partner organizations. Then we have our own ministries and programs. That's why we give, right? To create these types of things, to empower people, to, to give us kind of rails to go on. So we have our own ministries and programs like Project Hope, like Kids Church, Sunday morning. Believe it or not, you coming in here, this is a peacemaking adventure. We're hopefully being transformed to go out and be peacemakers, Right? the music that inspires us, it's all part of it, right? So we have our own programs and our own ministries that we exercise a measure of control over and, and participation in. And then we have something that I wanna share with you as a part of me and like this dream that I have uh, is affiliated uh, nonprofits, these new ventures that God whispers into somebody's heart, hey, I want you to get more involved in this area. I want you to start a nonprofit that focuses on uh, child literacy in Northern Colorado. And they say, well, I don't know where to start with that. I say, okay, well, we have a fund that can help you get started and we can actually run all your finances and show you how to make it so donors can donate and we can help you do all that stuff and you can have your own identity, but we can function as a corporate umbrella for you. And I've been a part of organizations that do this for 15, 20, 30 nonprofits and then you know what? They don't have to mess with. They don't have to mess with audits. They don't have to mess with getting their monthly budget reports. They don't have to mess with how do I set up a website? They don't have to have any all that. We just serve as a support system in the background as a church. Would it be cool to think that, that when we give and we create Crossroads, that we're seeing 20, 30 nonprofit agencies around the world being equipped to do this work that we said we wanna be a part of? And, and we never left Northern Colorado, some of us. It's amazing what we can do if we get inventive and creative and we support what God wants to do in people's hearts and lives. 
And this creates something so much better for us and for our world. We become people knowing that we're actually making a difference, that, that what is unacceptable, we have not accepted. And we're actually contributing our time, our talents and our energy to something bigger than going to church or creating a place that people want to come to church. We're actually seeing the kingdom of God advance and flourish. And you know what will happen? We'll continue to be vital. We will be vital to oppressed groups. We will be vital to communities that are facing oppression and individuals around the world. I don't know about you, but I wanna be vital to somebody somewhere. I don't wanna just be important to me. I've mastered that, (laughs) right? Most of us get how important we are to us, but I actually wanna matter to someone else. I want our church to matter. And you know what? Our name might not get plastered everywhere. It might not be, but we matter because we're just supporting what God is doing out there. And we're being transformed in it because we will encounter Jesus. When we start to serve the least of these, we're transformed because we encounter Jesus. I mentioned the story of the Good Samaritan earlier, and I probably have said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, the story of the Good Samaritan is about this man who's traveling along the road, and, and he's, he's overtaken by robbers. And he gets beat up, all of his clothes get taken, he's left on the side of the road for dead. And, and basically, a, you know, a Pharisee comes, a priest comes by, and sees him and, is, and just can't be bothered to stop for whatever reasons. And, and then another religious leader comes by and can't be bothered to stop. But then a Samaritan comes by who the audience listening to this story would understand that this was a person who was despised and thought of as less than and would never do anything. And the Samaritan comes and notices the man, picks the man up and binds up his wounds, sets the man on his horse and takes the man to an inn, buys the room, tells the innkeep, Whatever you have to do, I'll pay for it. I'll be back and cares for him. And Jesus says, which person was a neighbor to this man on the side of the road? And he says, well, the, the one who helped. I, don't even, I think the way Jesus tells the story is the person can't even get it out of their mouth. It's a Samaritan, you know, the one who helped him. And we look at that story. And a lot of times if you've heard that, we go, who's Jesus in that story? We always want to find ourselves in Jesus in these parables, which isn't healthy all the time. But he said, well, who's Jesus in this story? And we would naturally say, oh, the Samaritan, the Samaritan, the one who stops and helps, that's what Jesus does. And I would submit to you that a a more challenging way of reading and understanding this parable is that the man beaten on the side of the road was Jesus. Because the man beaten on the side of the road revealed character and transformed lives, right? The man beaten on the side of the road, because Jesus said, whenever you feed the hungry, whenever you clothe the naked, whenever you, uh, whenever you go and visit the prisoner, like you've done that to me. You've done it to me, that's me. I'm the victim. You wanna know where to find me. It's, it's not gonna be in the halls of power. It's gonna be in the victims. And it's in that encounter, it's in the encounter with the unacceptable that we are transformed. It's a wonderful way to read the parables. Whenever you see a victim, whenever you see someone cast out, whenever you see a person, read that parable with an understanding that Jesus is the one who's sent away. Jesus is the one who's cast out. Jesus is the one who's, and reading from that perspective will probably help us understand a better way of which people in Jesus' day would have heard those parables because they weren't reading him from first world wealth like we do. They were reading it from being at the, the lowest of the wrong when it comes to the social structures. So the only way I know for us to actually be transformed as people is not through really good music. 
No offense, Josh, wherever you are. It's great music and the band does a wonderful job. It doesn't transform us. Makes us feel good, opens our hearts up, does all kinds of things, but doesn't transform us. The only way I know to be transformed is to encounter the oppressed, the victim, understand now I'm talking to Jesus and let that person change me. Let that person change the way I live. Let that person change the way I spend my money. Let that person change the way I think about God, the way I think about the world. And then I know I've encountered the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the most humble of places, just like a manger. So as we wrap up today, what's God inviting you into? We're, we're closing in. Next week, we're gonna be talking and trying to distill these seven weeks into one talk about our identity and what God, what we believe God wants to do through us in the next 10 years and how God wants to do it. Probably more how than what and specifics. But as we talk about this from a global perspective, from where we're going, what is God inviting you into today? Well, here's one thing I hope that you'll start to do. Whether you're watching online or whether you're in the room, in a few weeks, in two weeks from now, we're gonna be talking about our 2020 emphasis, peace is worth it. If you've been around, you know that we did our kids are worth it emphasis. We believe God is calling us to move forward in this great big vision of peacemaking and to not let the pandemic stop us. And so that means giving of ourselves extra. And we're gonna talk about that in a few weeks. And, and if you're a part of Crossroads, if you, this is your church, I would just ask that you'd begin praying right now about your family's engagement with the Peace is Worth It ministry emphasis. We're gonna talk about what does it mean for us to give above and beyond of our time, talent, and treasure in the middle of a pandemic to make sure that when this pandemic is over, we haven't missed a beat. What does that take from us to, to move forward? So just begin praying about that. And you say, well, Ryan, you're gonna give me more details. Let's just let the spirit work in your life right now. And in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about that. Would you begin praying about that? Maybe you do want to jump involved and, and, and say, well, how do I just right now start to educate myself? Well, uh, there's a group of folks that have produced a wonderful resource that's in the group's catalog, which is online, and it's a lament for racial healing and hope. And you'll hear stories from our congregation around race. You'll hear poetry that's been written by the, uh, I, uh, I think they were the Nobel laureate this year, um, We've got a reading in there. We've got prayers. Just help us to learn, right? To educate ourselves, to experience it. And it's hard. It's not gonna be fun, but you might wanna go through that and then get some uh, prompts for prayer and other readings for the next uh, few weeks and participate in that. And I hope that you'll hear God inviting you to make next week when we talk about this vision in an encapsulated form a priority. And I'm not saying a priority to come and be in the room, but just a priority to connect to either listen in live to a live cast, to come and be here, or to watch it on demand. Song we have for you to wrap up today is called, uh, it says this, it says, love will hold us together. Make us a shelter to weather the storm. But the real lyric in this song that I would love for you to just open your heart to is this belief, this statement, which I think is what this whole message was about. So the last 40 minutes in these three lines, you're like, Ryan, why didn't you just start with this? It would have saved me a lot of time, I understand. But it, says, I'll be my brother's keeper so the whole world will know that we're not alone. Those three lines, I, I took so many words to say what those three lines are calling us into. To say it's unacceptable that my brother goes through this and I want the whole world to know that we're not alone, that God is present and I wanna be that visible expression. So I'll be back after this song to pray for us and then Jess will get us out of here.